Well, welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis. I'm here with my brother, Jeremy Sartori. It is a Brother, Brother podcast. And today we are talking about uh, what I think is a fantastic new documentary on Apple+. Plus. Uh, it's a um, multi-part series on just the music of 1971. Um, I hadn't heard about anything about this in advance. And so when I flipped on the TV and found it, I thought... Somebody had read my mind and uh, given me exactly what I wanted, and um, it kind of delivered. What do you think, Jay? Yeah, it's um, from the director who did the uh, documentary on Amy, right? The Amy um, documentary on Amy Winehouse. Uh, So it's, uh, is it Asif Kapadia? Kapadia? (laughs) Sorry for betraying names. Asif. Um, And yeah, I've been like looking for a reason to uh justify my apple tv subscription and i think i found one finally i um i really enjoyed it i mean there are definitely flaws in coming off of the um brilliant can't get you out of my head documentary um by adam curtis there's definitely some similarities too um but uh it's Mm -hmm. a, a style and uh you know, kind of a, a declaration, right? 1971, the year that music changed everything. Um, that's a pretty big declaration, yeah. and I, I think they come close to, to delivering. Yeah, I think it, it's funny. I mean, it's that's so that's a, a theory that they postulate, and uh, and um, then you know try and prove the theory, and, and and in a way they they do. I mean, they make a good argument. I don't think that you walk away definitively thinking that 1971 was the most important year in music history, necessarily, but. Um, you know, you could argue it, and yeah. uh, I think they argued it pretty well. I think a couple of things, just to stay on that topic real quick, and we can move into some of the the um, specifics. But, like, um, you know, it's weird. Being a huge music fan, it, there wasn't one piece of this documentary that I didn't know musically. Um, you know, there it's, wasn't any, you know, kind of um, unearthing of... There of, certainly... Sorry, Certainly, but, footage I hadn't seen. Oh, definitely, but. definitely. I just mean if you're a, if you're a, you know audiophile music freak like us, like you know the albums that they touch on the artists for sure. Um, where I don't you know know don't know that everybody would, but um, but I did not realize how much actually happened in that year, and that was you know mm-hmm. you sort of get a blur sometimes of the early seventies, late sixties, and I think you know. Um, not having been alive then, uh, you know, I don't always definitively know, like, oh, shit, that came out the same year that came out, and that came out the same year that came You know what I mean? It's, it's a period mm-hmm. you sort of think of and chunk together versus a, a year, and it is a very, very impressive year, and I think, you know, the doc really kind of kicks off with, um, you know, I thought in a really uh, effective way, Altamont and the ending, you know, the death of the 60s as it, as it kind of became known, and then rolls yeah. right into, you know, um, just sort of the, I think where it reminds me of the Adam Kurz doc is kind of just really tries to paint a picture of what society looked like in 1971 um, versus, you know, kind of the idealism of the 60s. And so the uh, unrest and, and, you know, Nixon, Vietnam still going on and just, uh, uh, you know, it's when things turned dark, right? There was a lot mm-hmm. more drugs, harder drugs. Um, a lot more violence, and uh, people had kind of given up on the on the ideals of the sixties. Yeah, the the ideals were. Dead. I mean, as you know, Bowie uh, so eloquently says. I think they quoted it twice in the or played the soundbite twice. You know, I think we've officially killed the sixties. Yeah. Um, you know it. You know that said, Altamont was in sixty nine. Um, very end of sixty nine. 
um, you know, which is sort of, you know, universally yeah, it's like a regarded. Yeah, preps you for what's to come kind of thing. Yeah, but kind of universally regarded as the end of the 60s or the death knell in the, um, you know, the sort of peace and love era. And, you know, you get into... 1970 and seven, then 71, uh, which is kind of the rise of the anti-war movement. I mean, not the rise of, but the, the culmination or the, the pinnacle of, of the anti-war movement. You've got Nixon in the White House. You've got... So people basically turn from all you need is love to um, a very pointed political um, level of songwriting. Um, and they do start off with, you know, what is qualifies as, as an absolute, you know, monolith or, you know, just a gigantic, um, you know, uh, uh, U-turn in a career, uh, brilliant career, unfortunately uh, shortened, um, but uh, Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. Um, you know, he went from a Motown soldier, essentially, you know, somebody who yeah, company was... Man. Uh, company, you know, singing Holland Dozier Holland songs, and uh, all of them are great, uh, but this was his, you know, he had a brother in Vietnam, and this was an incredibly personal and amazing record. Yeah, it's one that, um, you know, I hadn't revisited really in a while, and you just, they kind of really capture the depth of how, like, you know, just kind of poignant that record is and I think that's a sort of a theme you know it talks about like you know Neil Young writing Ohio and and um you know just people sort of turning insular in a way but but speaking to young people or to a generation in a different way than than it seemed like the 60s were you know um I guess to some degree where it, it became very lyric driven and uh and pointed you know pointed yeah yeah I mean it's just you know there are direct attacks I mean there are name checks of, you know, Richard Nixon in, in Ohio. Yep. And, um, you know, there's more of a, a loss, um, and a sense of, you know, uh, resignation and, and, uh, what's going on. It's, it's more of a, it, it, I mean, it is a quite, it is a song in the form of a question. Yeah. What's going on. Um, and so there, you know, it starts off with the sort of, um, you know, and, and then, you know, the other part of the come down, as you mentioned, is the sort of heavy drugs and you get there's a riot going on, uh, which you know a lot more about than I do. But, um, you know, I certainly have read the stories of um, Sly Stone holding up in Bel Air with a Winnebago full of cocaine <laughs> um, and just how, you know, I mean, it, 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 that is you just hear or, you know, in this case, you see. Um, live footage of Sly and the Family Stone, who had knocked him dead at, at Woodstock uh, three years earlier. Um, just this is the come down, and his, he sounds exhausted. And I mean, it's a classic album, but the guy sounds like he's on the verge of, of keeling over. Yeah, um, no, definitely. And they kind of parallel that with one of you know our favorites and, and greatest rock albums ever. Uh, Excel on Main Street, and I think the the two kind of keys there, and, and as we were talking about where it goes sort of insular is, you know, you have these kind of bands that, that came up in the 60s, Sly in particular, you know, was in San Francisco and, and had the kind of, you know, feel-good, everyday people vibe, multicultural uh, group, and, you know, and it's sort of, it's like, I think, you know, I guess you could equate it to like 
2016 election or something where you're just like, what the fuck? You know, it just sort of like mm-hmm. nothing turned out the way I think you thought it was going to. Um, and then, yeah, with the introduction of, of I think, cocaine and, and drugs that hadn't quite blown up bands yet. Um, you know, people were, were smoking weed and, and doing acid and all of that fun stuff. And then heroin, of course, with the Stones case. Um, you get these sort of like, both albums are actually really sound tight. I mean, I, the, you know, classic... Uh, Stone song Torn and Frayed like both both albums sound Torn and Frayed but yet are brilliant and mm-hmm. and you know ended up being you know um, in the Stones case not as much I didn't realize at the time but like you know they still were the biggest rock band ever and that tour completely catapulted them but the Sly you know that that album was the number one hit you know it had had you know just Family Affair and, family and these are songs that he couldn't didn't even want to put on the album. I think he just would get so fucked up and re-record over everything that somebody had to be there to be like. Oh, but I, like, I, wait. I think I think that I think both of those albums have been reassessed over the yeah. course of time. I don't think Riot, there's a riot going on was a huge critical hit when it came out. I think people were questioning whether um, you know they because there are some there's some weird you know silly songs on that album too yep. um and sort of experiments so i don't think that it was i mean i think it was a, a big hit and i think that there was a hit song um but i don't think the album was was wildly embraced i think it's much more um well regarded now than it was in its ac- actual time and the, i mean the same can be said for exile on main street and the same can be said for uh an album that was extremely um you know, popular at the time, but not really mentioned as much in this documentary, which is Led Zeppelin IV. Yeah. Um, you know, Ze- Zeppelin um, famously were not critical darlings uh, until much until later. Yeah, and I think the doc in general kind of has some flagpole figures. I mean, Mar- it starts with Marvin Gaye, um, doesn't quite go back there. But I think the flagpole figures, you know... It, that you work with are, are the Stones during the, the famous kind of uh, exile them to, exile to France, you know, when they were uh, broke and, mm-hmm. and recording that album in the mansion. Um, Sly goes back to quite a bit, John Lennon and Yoko and the end of the mm-hmm. Beatles because the, that sort of marked a period as well. Um, George Harrison. George Harrison, Alice for... Cooper um, for the mm-hmm. U.S. And then touches on groups like Kraftwerk and, and some of the other experimental stuff towards the end. That was really kind of and taking then, a new sound. Yeah, I would throw in, um, they did an entire episode basically on the, the rise of the female singer-songwriter. Yeah. And that sort of incorporated Carly Simon, Joni Mitchell. Carol uh, King. Carol King's Tapestry, which was, I you know, I wasn't alive. I mean, I wasn't uh, cognizant in 1971. Uh, I was alive. But, um, you know, that, that album was, I think, the biggest album of the, of the year. Um, oh, yeah. Was, I mean, it was just a monster hit. And, you know, it's an album, too. Like, I obviously wasn't alive, but that I've heard my whole life. Um, but you really do kind of get yeah. a sense. I think the Doc does a good job, again, of kind of tying in the, the social decline post-Beatles of England, the, you know, sort of women's mm-hmm. movement in America, and the, and the kind of, um, you know, retreat that the, I guess let's say the the hippie generation had to Laurel Canyon in the se- early 70s singer songwriter you know and kind of formed a new sound um and you know Carol King moving mm-hmm. out to LA from New York getting divorced and you just realize like I mean the not only are those songs brilliant and and you know you can pop it on anytime it, it's amazing but you know just how impactful they were at the time as well socially 
I mean, I always jokingly refer to collectively to the you know seventies AM as uh, divorce music, but uh, tapestry really is divorce music. I mean, yeah, tapestry it is the nail on the head. Divorce music. <laughs> And that um, rumors yeah. is the build-up. <laughs> Not yeah. much later, but if you want to put those together just in the divorce uh, saga. But then also George Harrison's um, concert for Bangladesh, uh, which was really the first um, major benefit concert, you know, sort of gave birth to uh, that concept, uh, you know, put together in Madison Square Garden in like a day and recruits all his buddies, including... Um, Ringo's, you know, Ringo Starr, so the first post-Beatles Yeah, Ringo um, had a pretty great line in that. I don't know if you remember, but he's like, yeah, you know, George didn't want it to be like a Beatles thing, so I just showed up <laughs> and started playing. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't invited, but yeah. I showed up because yeah. I had to. Um, and then you get, you know, in, in equal parts, you get the, you know, equal rights um, movement for women, for both women and, and blacks in yeah. America. And well, so you've got... Bill Withers. Mm, yep. Yeah, you've got uh, the, you know, like I said, the Carol King, Carly Simon, Joni Mitchell thing, but then you've got the Gil Scott Heron, um, Maggot Brain came out that year, if yep. you uh, wow. recall, and a, another album that you... Uh, yeah, I love, and I, but I still not, love. I was 71, yeah. Yeah, and then Bill Withers, uh, who, that portion was probably my favorite of the whole thing. Bill Withers, uh, if you don't know, I mean, I'm a, a great... Singer songwriter, um, and but a, a terrific backstory. There's a really good doc called Still Bill, um, where you know his uh, sort of um, his outlook on life is is very refreshingly bold and interesting. And you know he had a, he said I left a great job at Boeing installing toilets in seven twenty seven. Uh, 47s and um, you know if this music thing doesn't work out fuck it I'll go back to installing toilets I was making 40 bucks an hour yeah um, he had a couple of great lines um, including one that uh, you know being a, from West Virginia and the only kid from his family to not be a coal miner you know that he lived the blues as well so like you know basically yeah off. well he they were talking, you know, I mean, I think the criticism, uh, or at least the confusion from the record labels, which, you know, uh, are seem to be very easily confused back in the, those days and still, um, but, you know, they said, you you know, you sing kind of, uh, you know, sort of more folky music, um, you don't sing the, you don't sing any sort of blues-oriented stuff, and he's just like, fuck you, I'm from West Virginia, I am the blues. <laughs> yeah, it was great. <laughs> And he, you know, he also was bold in some of the interviews and footage, which I thought was great. I mean, you get some great footage. You have Sly Stone looking like he's on a different planet, um, you know. With Dick Cavett. Yeah, you know, Dick Cavett. Like consummate sort of bow tie wearing Yaley, uh, <laughs> you know, and he just is like so fucked up out of his mind um, that he he's like, yeah, he, he's not even connecting conversationally. And who is the Rolling Stone gentleman that's green something? I'm sorry, I'm forgetting his name, but he kind of threw out the thing, but went out to, you know, France to deal with the Stones. And, and, uh, and you know, there's, like, a great kind of, like, line where he's just like, oh, like, you know, just things, like, would get done, they wouldn't get done, and then, like, he just got offered heroin one day and was like, oh, that's the issue. <laughs> get it. Like, <laughs> they were just like, okay. You know, Keith would just sort of disappear. But, um, you know, Withers, too, I thought had some highlight, a uh, bunch of highlights in one, you know, being interviewed. And he's like, well, you know, like, I think, like, toilets are more important than a baseball player. Like, we just value the wrong things in these in this society sometimes, you know. <laughs> and it's like, I could live without, a, you know, I can't live without a toilet. I can live without, you know, seeing a, a star pitcher or something. And, and um, 
you know, I, I think too, it just reiterates some of these people, you know, obviously Bill Withers with having his big breakthrough with Stand By Me, you know, just. I know with the Lean On Me. Lean so. On Me, sorry. Lean On Me. Stand On Me was the, the movie in the 80s that probably introduced it to me. Um, but like, uh, it, you just realize too, I think you take for granted that these were huge hits, that, especially in, in, you know, my age where you sort of hear them on, um, you know, I guess yeah, they're just ubiquity. or classic rock or, or whatever it is. And that there was a, a ton of struggle for, you know, especially, you know, it focuses on Tina Turner too. And, you know, um, talks about James Brown and how like there was kind of, it was kind of the birth of a black culture being mainstream and, and making money, mm-hmm. but not, and I, the, it, I guess, you know, you always had the, the Jackson five and groups like that. And Motown, as you were mentioning before, but this was black culture. It was their culture being brought to the forefront, not well, it was a, also not a, not conforming power. to the white pop radio culture. You know, yeah, it's black power, black pride. I yeah. mean, I'm black and I'm proud, and and you know, um, there's just it's a different it it it's a again it's the departure from packaging, um, you know, from the Motown Barry Gordy kind of packaging factory, which again. I highly commend and, and love that stuff, but um, this is people breaking off and, and getting pissed off because the world is uh, not only is not only not fair, but it is patently unfair. Yeah, um, blatantly unfair. Yep, totally. And, and so um, it goes through you know the various sort of revolutionary aspects of this this time. So and then it it ends in a kind of an interesting uh, note. Um, and hopefully it will be followed. I would love to see it followed up by a whole series of, of other um, multi-part series on specific years. I think, um, you know, so many of them are fascinating. I mean, 77, 84, um, you know, 91. I think there's a bunch of years where you can sort of point to and say this is this, these were turning points. Um, but in this case, they end with uh, um, Pete Townsend, uh, whose next, of course, was is another uh, album that they they uh, feature fairly prominently, but with Pete Townsend playing with his synthesizer and getting the, um, you know, the sort of intro to Baba O'Reilly, or won't get fooled again. Sorry, <laughs> got a little mistake prone today, um, and uh, you know, it's it's just that you know, sort of a space age sound, and you don't realize how revolutionary it is at yeah. the time, but it's the first electronic music hit. Um, essentially, and the first time most people or many people had ever heard a synthesizer on a record, really. And so... And a band that had a huge rock audience, you know, huge... Yeah. And so then they they sort of extend that to to some early footage of Kraftwerk, which is is fascinating to me, because this is before they became actual machines. Um, They were just Germans. And... um, And... uh, you know, it's a, you you can see the through line going forward. I mean, you know that Roxy Music is coming up next. You know, I mean, yeah. and given the amount of time in this that's given to Mark Bolan and David Bowie, you can see, you know, Roxy's coming. You can see all sorts of of experimental stuff that's on the horizon. And you know, they make a case that seventy one is the sort of birthplace of those things. And uh, they may be right. Yeah, I think it's a it's a cool. I think it is a good case. I was gonna say let's take a quick break, and then um, I was gonna say um, let's call out a couple of highlights that you really liked, like just things maybe that were um, whether it was footage or newer or just a little segment. 
um, that, sure. that you thought were pretty cool. Um, and uh, let's go out on uh, Inner City Blues, Make Me Wanna Holla by Marvin Gaye. Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Today we are talking about 1971, the year, the music, and the Apple Plus documentary um, that we just watched that we both loved. And uh, what are some of your favorite sort of bits? I, we we uh, sort of run down in a very non-sequential way, um, you know, bits and pieces of this documentary. But what were some of your highlights that you hadn't seen before or hadn't thought of? Yeah, I think, um, interestingly, I think we both kind of watched it non-sequential, and it is sort of non-sequential when you do watch it, even if you were in order um, as well. It doesn't quite follow a timeline and bounces back quite a bit back and forth. Um, so st- stuff that I kind of just was aware of but not as aware of that I thought was really neat and and kind of um, interesting. I mean, like, you know, I'm, I'm pretty studied on the stones and, and as you mentioned, Sly and things like that. Um, I also felt like I was pretty studied on Bowie um, in particular, but the... The kind of just bleakness of, of 19, uh, 1970s, early 1970s, 1971 in particular, uh, England and the kind of like, you know, just sort of welfare state it had become post-war and, and uh, the contrast to that with glam, I just don't think I ever really quite... Um, Put that together? Yeah, put that together. I mean, I, I, I sort of get like the British pub rock and I get the kind of like... Yeah, I just never, it just made so much sense to me through this doc. Like, life is gray, you know? Mm-hmm. And here comes Mark Boland with, like, eyeliner, very good-looking guy, writing basically, you know, pretty simple 60s-style pop tunes with flair. Um, brilliant. I mean, I, I love T-Rex, and, and they're really catchy and really great pop tunes. But, I mean, you know, essentially, like, if you boil it down, right, it's like the Ramones. It's, it's pretty much like a, a, a 50s... 60s pop song, or, you know, rock Yeah, song. and Poland, Poland in particular, is the lyrics are nonsense. Yeah, for totally. For the most part. Yeah. Um, or just words that fit together. Yeah, I was dancing out of the womb and bang a gong, get it on. And then there's a sexuality, too, that was just really, um, you know, kind of brought to light. I mean, I think the 60s certainly opened up, like, the sexual revolution, but the 70s, like, you know, made it completely well, androgynous that was when you and started open. Playing, and, yeah. And, uh, and so I, I guess I just, I know glam and I, and I, but I never quite understood that. But the other part too was, you know, Bolin who sort of pre or kind of predates Bowie's fame or, or, you know, Bowie's kind of starting off and about to release Hunky Dory, which was 71. Um, you know, just his kind of shyness, like this guy had so much talent, you could tell, and people around him knew, um, but you know, that. That where he's playing early uh, glass, uh, Glasgow Fest, uh, you know, kind of the the early slot, yeah. the morning where everybody's passed out, 
and you yeah he just seems like he's apologizing for being there yeah he's apologizing for waking people up and he's playing like a very uh, timid version of changes acoustic but you also like can hear just like oh that's a brilliant song you know what i mean underneath Mm -hmm. this like shy guy and i thought him going out to the factory and you know sort of and i knew that you know obviously lou reed and iggy were were huge influences and he he kind of became you know boy always sort of transformed and, and and projected that that style he was a master at it um but at the same time just you know him not really knowing what to do with himself and like you know doing a mime act in the factory and stuff it was just funny to see because he's just been such a cool figure in my life my whole life and i yeah i almost thought he was weird to see born as Siggy insecure bowie yeah exactly <laughs> pre um you know uh pre kind of getting his his sea legs um and i thought that was that was pretty pretty damn cool and i also did enjoy you know the carol king one quite a bit too just because again that's sort of it was like my or parents' music. I mean, I, I like that stuff, and I've, I've grown to appreciate it. But I, you know, I didn't quite realize too, like what a mark that made at the time. Like I know how big that album is. Um, well, you also, you know, have have to realize that those people were the songwriting equivalent of like, you know, working at Fidelity. You know what I mean? Exactly. It's like they yeah. worked at the Braille Building, yeah. and their job was to crank out pop tunes. And it was her and Neil Sedaka yeah. and Burt Bacharach and, and, you know, this all-star, you know, these people who have become, like, incredibly iconic figures. But, you know, they were essentially working in a Hallmark, you know, factory writing, you know, um, you know, writing birthday cards. Well, in those and, shows um, at the Troubadour, when, you know, she sort of started to play solo, and again, how shy she was, and, and I think Jackson Brown mm-hmm. was the one who really, was it Jackson Brown or, or James Taylor? I think, I can't remember, one of those two. Taylor, James Taylor. Yeah, James Taylor sort of. he ever did. Yeah, really, yeah, exactly, I was going to say, that sometimes they're interchangeable, although one has like two better songs than the other, who has none, um, but um, yeah, James Taylor really kind of, like, I forget, like maybe he cracked a joke or sort of like, heckle there on stage or something and it just kind of brought out this new version of her and uh yeah you know i mean even elton john you know they have great footage of like elton john playing the troubadour and those are stories you kind of know but it, it was great to see and, and you're just like yeah that's yeah. pretty impressive and that guy knew he was the uh-huh. man and, and you know and it's always fun to see too just certain people who know like i think elton john right away was like america is the place i'm going to be huge and other artists it was mm-hmm. the opposite you know yeah, um, you know it's funny because you think of that, and that's a that's a good episode idea at some point. But go back and and figure out the bands that had to go overseas to be big, and and English acts that came over here to be big. You yeah. know, I mean, you've got Elton John. Um, you know, Jimi Hendrix had to go to England. The Ramones had to go to England. Um, yeah. The Pixies Pixies. had to go to England, um, and they were much bigger in Europe than they were in their hometown. Um, but you know, it's, it's kind of funny or, and, and then guided by voices, of course, having to go to New York yeah. um, because they weren't listed in the top 50 bands in Dayton, Ohio. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, another great story. One, one, uh, you know, omission that I will, uh, complain about just cause it's what I do. Um, I didn't see anything really about Harry Nielsen and Nielsen right. Schmielsen came out that year and yep. it's probably one of my favorite albums ever. And, um, you know, I didn't think they spent a lot of time on, on Maggot Brain, which is one of your favorites. Yeah. And, um, even Zeppelin Four got pretty short shrift on this, so... Yeah, um, they think you about know, you those... Can't, you can't have everything, but... I can see the Nielsen and Funkadelic just being a little more underground, but if you're going to spend time on craft work and, and, you know, things like that, then you should definitely touch on those. Um, Zeppelin Four I think, was a big miss, and again, not because I think Zeppelin needs that much attention. They have plenty, but... Uh, it's just a huge album, right? You know, it just seems like it mm-hmm. would be kind of 
something that you would you would plug in there. Yeah, um, you know, and, and it also, you know, this is still a period in England, particularly, where like novelty songs are are getting, you know, are becoming number one hits. So you're still oh, some uh, of that you know, you're still, great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the old man surrounded by the like with schoolgirls, he's like la di da, and you're like that's just creepy. Yeah, <laughs> singing about schoolgirls, I believe. Yeah, uh, it was, that that. I mean, I remember when I was a kid. I mean, there was. Um, there was a really bad song called Save All Your Kisses for Me, and it was just like a cheesy, um, you know, kind of show tune kind of song, and it was number one in England. It was like, you know, save all your kisses for me, save all your kisses. And then somebody did a novelty song called You Served Me Kippers for Tea, um, and of course, that's a riot, so that becomes number one. And this is all in like the set late seventies in England. Yeah, well, that's what so. was great. It was like no wonder "Bang a Gong," you know, "Get It On" became like, oh my god, you know, please. Yeah. And uh, sorry, one other touch point off the uh, the Adam Curtis doc is you know, it this didn't quite because it wasn't the focus of the doc, but if you if our listeners know that you know, Wyndham and I are just that doc blew our minds but the one sort of dynamic now that i couldn't get out of my head was sort of that old power right you had sort of the silent majority in the nixon u.s that mm-hmm. people were rebelling against and then england was just you know bowler um, hats and, yeah exactly and white guys great footage teeth. of the bowler yeah. hat you know people asking them like get the fuck away from me you know it's just like yeah and then it's i mean we've we've brought up craft work multiple times but the other rising um, you know, trend in, in British music was the rise of reggae in the, in right. the early 70s. Yeah. So, yeah, and you the know, the sort and of... the reggae guy and the East Indies folks hanging out, you know, music bringing mm-hmm. them together weirdly. I love that too, I, you know, because it was a passing line, but it was a great one. And, and we can maybe end on this, but when they talk about, um, you know, the British papers were full of of stories of racial strife and, you know, Don Letts is on Don Letts future, um, documentarian and member of, uh, uh, big audio dynamite, um, and massive DJ, hugely influential British artist. Uh, but, uh, Don Letts saying, well, you know, um, skinheads and, and West Indians, uh, hanging out together, listening to music does not make a good headline. So it never made a headline. Right. The fact is there was a lot of, you know, great sort of, um, cultural meshing, uh, that was going on at the same time that, uh, you know, Don Letts, according to Don Letts is, was ignored by the, uh, press in favor of the more, um, sort of fantastical headlines of, of, you know, race riots. Yeah, no, that was a good quote. I actually um, finished on that episode, so that was good. Any highlights for you before we wrap this up? You know, um, I just love when I see footage that I've never seen before. I mean, yeah. it's, it's seeing early craft work look like hippies. Um, you know, reminds me of seeing like, <laughs> yeah, without, it reminds me of like seeing Daft Punk without helmets. You know what I mean? It's yeah. it's just, um, you know, it's just not what I think of when I see them. And and also they they had, I will say that, you know, they they. Uh, Trojan Horse, some really good uh, obscure music in there. I mean, Gong is uh, opens, you know, a song by Gong opens one of the episodes, and and uh, there was another band that I and I don't remember the name right now, but I've literally never heard of. Um, and I liked, uh, I actually really liked the you know sort of gimmick that they used when they played a song. They they sort of had a, a graphic of of the forty five with the name of the band in the song in the lower corner 
And I thought that was like a really cool thing. It's a, it, you know, we keep um, alluding to um, Adam Curtis, but, you know, the reason we keep alluding to Adam Curtis is because this is put together in the same sort of collagist, um, you know, uh, you know, production and, and use of visuals and non-synced uh, audio and dialogue um, that, yeah, that Adam similar. Curtis's yeah. stuff is. So it, it doesn't always, you're not always seeing what you're listening to and or listening to what you're seeing. And, and I really love that. I think it's very artful and, and a cool uh, way to present information. So that's, you know, that's where that comp comes in um, is really kind of the style of the filmmaking and uh, use of music, so... Yeah, I um, like that, too. All in all. I thought it was cool, very cool how they did that, and... Uh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, all in all, I think we're giving it a huge thumbs up and telling people to watch it. Yeah, I think um, it's it's a, it's a really interesting piece of, you know, music history, and, and then I think done in a style that I thought was, like, really cool and, and definitely brought to light some stuff. They had some great footage. I mean, even, you know, some of the footage of, of like just drugged out Keith Richards is, is kind of crazy to see and, and um, oh yeah and there's some a lot of it <laughs> and, uh, you know yeah <laughs> but um yeah. but you know too I loved how it ended and I don't think I'm giving anything away it's a documentary so um but you know with even like Ziggy like Bowie already kind of moving on to Ziggy Stardust which the single came out in 71 and from Hunky Dory and, and that kind of collage at the end, I won't give that away, but of, of more modern artists and those touch points of change. And I think I think that's what was really kind of cool was they and brought the point home. And I think you were you were alluding to that, that earlier. Mm. So you want to take a quick break and we'll come back and end this the way we end all of them? Yeah, what, what uh, music from 1971 should we have Damien play on the way out? Um, I feel like I'd be going too obvious if I if I... Uh, actually, let's let's do that gong song. Okay, cool. brother pod today it's win and i and we just wrapped up talking about the uh i'd say epic apple tv's 1971 year the year that music changed everything um a multi-part documentary and we're gonna end this pod like we always end it Wyndham, what are you listening to well i just watched a really good documentary um 
But uh, let me think. What have I? What am I listening to? Um, uh, I read Hidden Valley Road. Um, I finished Hidden Valley Road. I think since we last spoke, um, which is a very excellent book from last year. Actually, I did bring that up last time. Um, what did? I, what am I listening to? Oh, uh, I listened to the new Japanese Breakfast album. Mm, uh, I, I was giving that a couple of spins too. Yeah, it's it's good. I like it a lot, and I like the new Lord Huron a good bit. And mostly, I've been listening to a lot of uh, old stuff because I've been hanging around with a lot of people, and I've been trying to please the public. But um, in between, I have been listening to Japanese Breakfast, and I am very interested now, I think, to read her book, which is number two on the New York Times bestseller list, uh, believe it or not. How did uh, I miss that? Michelle so she Zahner. has a book, too? Yes, it's called Crying at the H Mart. Um, most <laughs> of her, a lot of her earlier uh, records dealt with the uh, very young death of her mother at a very young age. Uh, her mom died in 2014. And she's written a book called Crying in the H Mart, which is, um, if, if you don't know, is kind of a specialty store. Uh, I know for H-Mart, Asian. Yeah. But, and so that book debuted at number two on the New York Times bestseller uh, non- I, memoir, I guess it would be, um, autobiography memoir. And um, her name is Michelle Zauner. And that she puts out good music too. So uh, the new Japanese Breakfast, I strongly recommend. It's very, very clever, and it's uh, very apparent that she's a writer of of uh, some um, significant talent. So, what are you listening to, Jer? Yeah, cool. I also um, did a similar thing. I was this weekend. I, I listened to that when I was walking around, and, and I really liked it. And uh, I didn't obviously read enough to know that she had a book as well. But um, I've liked some of her other stuff too. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, in addition to that, and watching the doc we just saw, um, I've been turned on to that band UVTV, um, which is a, a pretty good pop, pop trio. I guess sort of. Um, I think you mentioned Lush, um, which I think, yeah, definitely kind of sums it up pretty guitar-y, but definitely catchy, and uh, and I, I like that record quite a bit. I've been taking to, like, uh, just checking out Bandcamp, like, what's new and notable, um, and you can find some bands on there that I hadn't heard of before that, that are usually pretty damn good. Um, the other thing that yeah, I've been, I really like that as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a good, good record, and I've been listening to a lot of old stuff, too, just I think this doc kind of sparked off a Bowie kick and, and you know, things like that. But um, the other thing that I got obsessed with um, that our producer Damien actually turned me on to, hold on one sec, because I just want to get the name right, but um, it's the um, Open Mic Eagle uh, Jesus podcast. Podcast, yeah, sorry. And I'm trying to get the name because I'm sorry. How It Happened. How It Happened. Yeah. How It Happened. Yeah, I always want to say like what happened or how it happened, but there's two seasons. Yeah. First season is um, Prince Paul, you know, famously um, producer for De La Soul and, and uh, you know, went on to do Chris Rock albums and Handsome Boy Modeling School with Dan the Automator. And uh, that one's a gem. And then the one that um, really was great, too, is second season is with LP. So you kind of start at Company Flow. And the, the way the doc is it's on Stony Brook Media uh, available on Apple and, and Spotify and uh, wherever you get your podcast. But the um, the thing that I, I think is kind of cool is just taking these iconic artists. I think the concept's great, and they, it's about eight episodes for each. 
and really just takes through their whole career. So, um, you know, you get a little bit of repeat information because if people tune in at different times, for sure. But for the most part, it's just a conversation about their career. And, um, and you know, from somebody who's also in the industry and, and a rapper and MC. And, uh, you know, it brought me also back onto like a real kind of early, mid-2000s hip-hop kick. So I, I kind of went back into some EPMD and Gangstar and Company Flow and, um, you know, even Killer Mike's album rap music which I wasn't as familiar with that LP produced and that's kind of how they connected um you know just it, it, it I went deep diving I guess into a lot of hip-hop that I was around um I've always loved hip-hop but um a lot of times I had friends who were probably more primary hip-hop heads than I and I was a little more indie rock or, or whatever but um a lot of stuff that I just had kind of forgotten about or, or hadn't listened to in a long time that was pretty impactful or, or pretty aware of and, and i Found the LP one just kind of, uh, just an interesting thing. I just love stories about guys who kind of, both these guys, Principal and LP, who kind of, you know, just loved music but didn't ever really think they would have a career in it and, and uh, you know, sort of forged their way and, and to success, really, after some, like, you know, uh, LP's record label going bankrupt and, you know, at one point Prince Paul talks about, you know, ending his relationship with De La Soul and, and you know, like, literally about to become apply to be a postman you know and that's when Chris Rock <laughs> called him up and he's like you know he called the guy back and I'm just like yeah yeah like uh can I speak to Chris Rock just totally thinking it was bullshit and then he's like holy shit this is Chris Rock <laughs> yeah um uh so you know I, I just, Actually, if you if you like hip-hop and you know um I think they're great and then if you just like music I, I think the pods are really good as well um so definitely worth listening to and then I'm also you know, about three quarters of the way done with a book I've mentioned before, but um, in that, you know, it was older, I think it came out in 2009, Let the, the Great World Spin, Colin McCann, and uh, just reiterating that, like, every chapter I read in that book, and I am a slow reader for our listeners, so you probably will hear me mention the same books over multiple podcasts if it's a what are you listening to part, but uh, it's just got to be, like, one of the most beautifully written books I've, I've read. I, I just am totally enamored with it every time I pick it up, so... Um, as slow as I read it, it's wonderful. If you've never read it, pick it up. It's a great one. So you want to throw a song on the playlist? Yeah. Um, I'm going to go with... Uh, do we have Our Lips Are Sealed by the Go-Go's on there? We might. We do not. We don't? All right, cool. I uh, The UVTV got me into some like early, late 80s uh, women-led groups, so I was listening to... like the primitives and things like that. And then I just realized, man, the go-go's were there first. And that's a great song. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to go with, uh, it's too late by Carol King. Nice. Nice. I love that song. It's, it's, it's a great song and it is it's never too late to one put on, of a, the most, on a playlist. <laughs> it's, uh, it's just the most, one of the most melancholy songs I've ever heard. And it, but it, it still resonates. It still sounds great. Yeah, awesome. Well, cool. Well, Pop was on, and uh, thanks. It was good. Glad we got to talk about 1971. Highly recommend it. Me too. Talk to you soon. Bye. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.